Hello, and welcome to the A440 Podcast, the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with. I'm your host, Charles Fiore, and we're listening to Chthonic Mass by composer Forrest Covington Jr., performed by the Winston-Salem Piedmont Triad Symphony and the North Carolina Symphony under conductor Peter Veray. Forrest Covington Jr. won the 1982 BMI Student Composer Award for Chthonic Mass, and he is today's featured guest, not only on this episode, but next week's as well. You heard that right. It's the first ever two-part episode for the A440 Podcast. Thanks to Forrest for letting us use Chthonic Mass throughout this episode. You can learn more about him and hear more of his compositions at www.forrestcovington.com. That's two R's in Forrest. Forrest and I met up at Johnny's Gone Fishing, a gas station turned wonky coffee shop in Carborough, North Carolina. Forrest used to buy ammunition there, as well as prepackaged bait worms. Now, of course, it's full of UNC students and artsy folks like us with somewhat flexible real jobs, slurping coffee and pretending to work. Before I could even get my recorder out, I hadn't even had my first sip of coffee, Forrest had launched into a long digression about Freudian archetypes in art and literature and whether the same could be found in music. I scrambled to hit record and pretty much just let him lay down some truth. So right now we're just going to go ahead and jump into that conversation. Enjoy. Because you were saying, yeah, you compose in a lot of, you know, different, you compose in a lot of different styles. Uh, yeah. Pretty much to the point where every piece I write is in a different style. Right. Right. Lately I've been doing some that are in more, you know, you know, a little more stylistically consistent because I haven't been, you know, doing them for a mission or a commission or anything. But my general idea uh, was that uh, the, the style of a piece of music should reflect where you, what you want to do with it. Okay. okay, and if I'm a good enough musician, then I should be able to do something in a rock and roll style or a jazz style or a classical style. I should, you know, have my materials mastered that level. And uh, what I was going to say before was back in the 70s, when I was in the music conservatories, that was when kind of the peak of the uh, uh, Viennese school and their cohorts in the academic music world, which was a... a uh, a style of music that I didn't really object to so much for the style as for the fanatical dedication of its adherents <laughs> and their conviction that if you didn't adhere to that style that you were obviously some kind of retrograde troglodyte mouth breathing sure. but so but that actually atmosphere has not lasted and I think more and more people now more and more composers now are definitely see kind of a multi-stylistic approach as part of your you know, part of your part of what you should do and and you know things like different the different techniques that the 20th century came about with or invented uh, they reached a saturation point where you're really not going to invent anything that's technically new in music and so that I think in a way that's an opportunity to come back and look instead of the, the composer you know, looking at his, the outward manifestations of the style, use the style to represent the inward manifestations of his psyche. Gotcha. Right? That doesn't seem like such a radical idea, but it made me a little bit of an outcast in the day. 
But no, the musical style has to serve the idea, right? Or the themes or the emotions you're trying to accomplish, right? I mean, well, it's a, yeah, if you have a, if you have something you want to achieve in a piece of music, there are multiple ways you can get there. Right. You know, um, you know, you could write something with the kind of pathos of, say, uh, the the funeral march movement, movement in Beethoven's Eroica uh, uh, Symphony. Mm -hmm. I mean, or you can write. Uh, uh, I've heard some horribly, wonderfully sad songs. Uh, it, it, the music could be simple, uh, it could be very complex, it depends, once again, all, you have to have an idea, I guess, of where you want the final uh, product to end up. And I think people who understand this best are actually film composers. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why you'll hear uh, for my, uh, my abstraction bona fides are in the BMI piece. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that, um, well, it's not interesting, it was my intention. When I wrote that, um, I had been, a friend of mine, when I was a college student, who was a philosophy major, introduced me to the works of Carl Jung, which is not such a radical thing to these days, but back then it, it pretty much uh, blew me out of water. Mm -hmm. And so I started really thinking about that, and for several years I thought about how, if there were such a thing as archetypal patterns in music, right. how would you, how would that work, and how would the, you know, what what would that entail as to how you you went about creating a musical form? Because I, I'm of the opinion that when you're dealing with something more complex than, say, a song, or something that can be done in just like thematic alterations like ABA, those kinds of things, which are fine, but if right. you're doing something more complex than what you're doing, I think is creating a narrative not unlike what a novelist might do when they're designing a plot or thinking of creating a plot. And that's in the, you know, the, the a not good, I've always heard that, uh, from my wife especially, that a good novelist starts out with a plot and then as soon as they create real characters, the characters take over and finish the plot out. And I think that, that can happen to a composer too. I know that happens to me a lot. It seems I've done my best work when I've been kind of flying along almost without consciously thinking about what I'm doing. So it's almost dangerous to overthink your work. I might have an idea of how a piece will start. Yeah. And certainly I'm well-versed in all of the necessary compositional techniques and things like that to pull off anything I want to do. Sure. But it seems like to me that what happens when things go right is that I have an initial idea, and then as I'm working on it, it becomes something that erupts on its own, seemingly like out of the head of Zeus. Now, I use the word erupt, I-R-R-U-P-T, the way Jung used it. Okay. He would, he would talk about how uh, something of the archetypal unconscious would erupt into the consciousness. And he talked about that, especially in terms of artists, writers. Uh, he didn't mention musicians, because musicians, music is so abstract right. that you can't point to things in it that exist as symbols like you, you would in, say, uh, literature or religion or, or any of that. It doesn't, you know, you can't say that a perfect fifth symbolizes something, right? right? right. And so that's one of the reasons I was so fascinated by Jung's approach, because I, I was trying to bridge the gap between, he had some very definitive ideas that could be seen and, and, and uh, analyzed in, say, literature and art. And over here in music, I knew that there was music that had this power, right. and the power of it could be overwhelming. And I found it hard to believe that somebody who's ultimately, say it's like Beethoven, obviously brilliant, but an inarticulate man. Mm -hmm. And 
how he, I don't, I didn't see how he could have deliberately designed, say, the Eroica Symphony to be as powerful as it was. I think what, what the role of composer, is, at least I see my role as, is I am the molder and shaper of what would otherwise just be a kind of a flood of stuff, a, a mud, a, a mud, uh, mud flow, right? Sure. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of like corralling that and channeling that into a, a formal structure and using a kind of rhetoric, and that's where I think the style comes in. Um, for instance, my, my Thonic Mass piece that won me the award, it's also the only one I've ever done that was controversial. Okay. How so? Um, because I made, I don't, I don't say I made a mistake, you'll hear that there's a vocal part in the electronics, and the vocal part is based on singing Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God, is down a minor third. Okay. And that was actually one element I chose. But then what I did was I started manipulating that electronically. But there were people who were in the um, audience who came up to me later. I had two kinds of reactions. Well, there were people who loved it yeah. and thought it was, you know, very unique. And for me, it is was unique. But some people said, you know, you were kind of offending a lot of people when you, when you, you know, what right did you have to use that word? And I thought, well. Mozart used all kinds of religious words and symbols in his stuff, but it's singing a religious text. Why were they so upset by the use of that one word? It was because of the, what other people, and sometimes the same people would say the same thing. A lot of people came up to me and said, I was horrified and frightened and terrified. And it's that piece, and when the organ solo came in, I burst into tears. Well, you know, well, they, they said, I don't like being manipulated, having my emotions manipulated in that way. And I got that response a lot because they felt some unpleasant things. Because of the minor, because, no, because of the, minor of the whole third, piece. The whole piece, but, but yeah. So they, they were able to pin, oh, you used Yah, the word, you used the name of God, Yahweh, so right. that, you know, that's offensive. And they were triggered, you might say, yeah. by that. Of course. Um, because it seemed to them it had to have no context that placed it into something that was safe in their minds. Or, or that felt safe for them. It was just out there, and then it was in this sea of um, uh, abstracted, uh, dissonant, semi-dissonant uh, music. It seemed like uh, they found the, the association troubling even more than The idea of a phonic mass was, I took the word phonic from Carl Jung. Phonic refers to forces from the earth and from the underground from the underworld, and he referred to phonic forces as those that were embedded so deeply in our subconscious that they were literally tied in at almost a cellular level. Yeah. That's interesting. I started out thinking that I would I would design this piece to be archetypal, that I would have uh, the three sections kind of like invoking something, uh, working that thing out, and then recapitulating it. So in other words, I kind of, uh, I kind of superimposed an ABA or sonata type form on the whole thing. Okay. But um, I knew that if I sat there and fiddled with it and fiddled with it and fiddled with it for hours on a desk, I would write something that was maybe intellectually interesting but had no, uh, no guts to it. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down, I'm going to do this in six weeks, I'm going to do this every day, I'm going to do this score, and I'm going to do a page a day. Okay. And that's what I did, I finished it in six weeks. Yeah. And so I, I also said, I'm not going to revise anything, I'm going to take this pen, mm -hmm. and, I'm gonna, and I used a pen to make sure I couldn't erase anything. And I simply said, I think about it, and, or I don't think about it. Right. You know, maybe I'm like throwing uh, dice 
in some places. And, uh, or maybe I only think about, only have a few minutes to think about, do I want to put this here? And the result of that was what you'll hear, confusing and chaotic, and yet it still maintained, I was still able to impose enough of a direction that it isn't completely formless. Um, that's fascinating because, I mean, I, I, we talk a lot about on the podcast about uh, constraint and how that can really benefit whether you're a writer or a musician or a composer. That um, constraint can actually give you a lot of freedom when you are creating. Um, yes, I uh, like restraint. Right. And, in, in, and that's interesting. What you did there was constrain yourself by, in a different way, um, by giving yourself like a time limit, like a one page a day kind of mm-hmm. thing. And actually, instead of constraining it, it just it actually you actually were constraining yourself so that you would be more loose and free and more chaotic you actually developed chaos out of that right i I did not want my well-educated conscious mind Mm -hmm. to step on it right any more than had to be and so by writing one page a day never revising anything not changing anything um, and then when the piece was performed years later i still didn't change anything okay um i didn't make any major changes except maybe some places i I sped things up. The piece is, is, is written for a double orchestra, okay. a pipe organ, and electronics. I originally wanted to put a chorus in it, but at the place I wrote it, the Cleveland Institute of Music, they had no choir. Okay. And But I wanted the human voice to be in there, but I also wanted the voice to not... The, that one word, Yahweh, was the only actual word I wanted in the whole thing. It's the only actual recognizable word in any of the vocal parts, some of which are recorded and overdubbed. Um, that is good. That's uh, yeah. That's that's um, challenging because isn't I mean in in Judaism, right? That's the one word that can't be pronounced, right? Or is is it not true? I think. So. Well, they write it's kind it. of the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, they write it, mm-hmm. and actually, Yahweh is not the actual word. It's just the three letters. Right, the three letters. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, have you gotten any feedback from uh, musicians as far as like what it's like to play that piece? Or yes, um, the, in the first place, it's incredibly difficult. And the first <laughs> two times the NC Symphony did it, Peter Perry conducted, they blew it apart, and they were filing out of the hall with their faces down over that. And I was standing, that's okay, it's okay. You know, I know, I know exactly the problem you had with it. It's not a problem. This is wonderful for me. It doesn't matter if you make mistakes. And and then the third time they played it, which is the one I have important, they nailed it. Nice. And, uh, so it's not one of those pieces you can just sit down and crank out, I guess, right? No. no. Um, in fact, the, it, one of the things it involves is it involves 12 timpani. Okay. And the two timpani are tuned in a 12-tone series minus one note because I only wanted 11. Okay. Why is it? Why? Uh, because 12 is rounded. Right. That was there's one of my little intellectual tricks right Please, there. Yeah. Probably ended up meaningless. Okay. But I now another piece uh, done on you here on my website. Anagogy uses yep. an octatonic scale. Okay. That does not contain an F natural until the last few bars. Nice. Yeah. So the first F natural that appears in the piece after it's almost over is like a shock. Mm-hmm. It's like something out of left field. I like that. Yeah. I like the way you're again using using form to kind of. Um, Give yourself freedom. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You know? Yeah, I, I try and keep my own. Now, that isn't true for every piece. Sure. Since I spent seven years writing and arranging pieces for middle and high school. Okay. And none of this applies in that right. context. And actually, those were some of those were some of the hardest things I did. Right. Um, and you talk about constraints. Yeah. You know, constraining it um, for the playing technique of the kids. Um, <clears throat> that was an incredible experience in some ways because I learned so much about. Um, 
you know, it's been so long since I was that age and who had learned about music, I got to see other people learn, that kids that age learn about music all over again. And I found some, I could go on and on about that. It was a yeah. wonderful experience. That, that sounds like a lot of pressure. I mean, I think the hardest audience is, you know, kids between oh, the ages yeah. of 7 and 16, you know, or well, whatever. What I found out was that their mental and artistic sophistication yeah. far outstripped their actual technique. Okay. And that if you could explain an idea to them well, they could pull it off. That's cool. As long as you didn't give them anything that was too technically difficult. Right. Right. That makes sense. For sure. You know, simple but not simple-minded. This was one of my, uh, Donald Erd was one of my composition teachers. That was one of his favorite phrases. Simple, simple but not, but not simple-minded. Simple like that. Yeah, I guess that's in the same way, like sometimes the most, to me, like the most effective, like hymns or whatever, are like the ones that have the simplest yeah. melodies, you know, and it's like, there's, not, there's nothing crazy going on, but it's just the right amount, you know, of, uh, whatever, you know. Um, it's you, that piece it seems like really ahead of its time. It just because, seems like uh, because I mean a lot of people now, especially with all the technological developments, um, ability to sample and everything like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean people are using the human voice now as more of a. I wanted to ask you about it anyway. I mean, because um, you write for the human voice a lot, and uh, and, you, and listening to that series of poems you set to music, I mean the human voice there is almost more of like an instrument than a vocalist. I almost feel like you know. Right. And, yeah. That's one. Is that, I mean. Is the human voice something you're interested in as more oh, yeah. than just like a oh, yes. presenter? I went, into, uh, I went in and sang in a chorus for yeah. about five years before I uh, started teaching at Hallbridge because I had decided that more and more, that, especially in a, because I've done electronic music, I've done a lot of it in sample, yeah. I've done all that, and I was coming more and more to the conclusion that for mental or spiritual reasons that I wanted, especially in this age, I wanted music that arose from the human being. Uh, it's something that's in your hands that you're playing, cool. or something that comes out of you. You're, you're blowing it through a wind instrument, you're singing it. Uh, that, in other words, the, going back to the way music was before electricity, because especially Western music arose from singing. And we think of melodies and songs as the fundamental block of what music is, as a fundamental uh, foundation. What I'm working on now is um, a, uh, going to be a sizable oratorio for brass instruments, organ, percussion, and chorus. Okay. It's based on the World War I poetry of Wilfred Owen and the uh, Vulgate text of the Latin Bible. Wow. Uh, so I, I intersperse those texts and things like that. But okay. um, I was originally going to do that for the anniversary of World War I, then realized that, no, nah, I, I want to do this because I want to do this. Right. You know, and plus I taught at Hallbridge, and that, that uh, yeah. took seven years out of that project. <laughs> <laughs> work gets in the way. Well, what I, I, made a, about I had made a full rough draft of it. I have a full first draft to work on. So. Okay. Well, um, what you said a lot of, I mean, it seems like you do go to poetry a lot as far as, is it inspiration for you or is it libretto <laughs> or what is well, that? <laughs> I don't know if my good friend Jonathan Farmer would agree with this assessment, uh -huh. but to me... Shout out poetry, Jonathan Farmer. Yes, yeah. I love that guy. Yeah. I love to nail him with bad puns. But, um, I see poetry as the place where the spoken word and the musical sound connect. Absolutely. And uh, that's not a new view either. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't think I do anything that's radical or new. I'm just assembling my own little tool kit of them. And so now that's why I choose poems that are short. I also deliberately choose poems and avoid things that are too um, literary, you know, you yeah. know, lots of big words and stuff, you know, yeah. Wordsworth and all that. I don't 
I don't like long, epic poems to set to music. I like short ones. Uh, Emily Dickinson, Sarah Teasdale. Sarah Teasdale especially appeases, appeals to me. Every one of her poems is <clears throat> like a punch in the gut. I mean, they have a powerful emotional point put forth in simple words. Uh, and uh, I think those are important because the first thing music does to a poem when you set a poem is it expands the time scale of the poem far beyond what you would get if you just read it. Great point. And what are you doing with that expanded time scale? Obviously you're filling in a lot, you try as a musician to fill in a lot of the numinous, unknowing uh, details right. and nuances that the poem makes you feel, but that aren't specifically in the words. Right. So the, the, poem is, the poem is where the words aspire to music. It's like they're looking up and music is looking down and that's where, you know, like the picture where God touches Adam. And, you know, that's where the two kind of meet. Right? Um, so for instance, those uh, Sarah Teasdale songs, especially the, the one, I especially love, my favorite of those three is the E.E. E. Cummings one. Okay. Because the surrealism of Cummings poetry left so many potentials. Sure. And, uh, <clears throat> And it had the, it had both a simplicity, but a kind of the imagery of it right. was both very definite and yet very ambiguous. Right. It, was, it was perfect vehicle. That's awesome. And uh, so that explains kind of the slow jazz. And the, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I had a feeling when I started that that this should happen. This, this is a song that should happen. You know, like by a river in New Orleans in, <laughs> in the hot, hot summer. Yeah. Where just swampy. Yeah. 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 So I had that Very feeling cool. to the point. Right. So that's why I tried yeah. to hear the song. And the reason it has a third instrument, the flute, yeah. is because I was usually you see, oh, there's a singer on top, and there's a piano in the bottom, and the piano has to stay out of the singer's way, and all of this stuff. But what I like. Up until the Teasdale cycle, which is just a straight accompanying song cycle, what I liked was I liked the situation where you had, once again, the vocal element with the words, the piano providing a background, but also a third instrument, almost as if it was a singer, uh, almost as if the flute, say, was another singer. The flute was one of my favorite instruments to add in the voice. Um, another good one is, is the clarinet. The flute's the flute is such a human instrument because how I mean you, you always you can really hear the often hear the musician actually breathing into it. I mean it's really like the life, like breath of life kind of thing with on the flute, you know, which kind of supports your idea of like trying to be more human in your instrumentation and your compositions and stuff, and to highlight the human element, right? right? Yeah. Well, isn't music something that is both in, incredibly intimately human, right. but also highly abstract? Yeah. It comes from a part of your same part of your brain that does mathematics, but it also comes from the same part of your brain yeah. that does language, and uh, they're finding out more and more that it's coming from the parts of your brain, even the, the uh, subconscious systems that govern your emotions. That's why, okay. you know, why would something that you hear, why would a series of sounds make you want to cry? Why would it make you happy? And so, uh, I don't think I don't know the answer to those questions, but I. That, that was where I started to search for, are there archetypal things? And of course, I re found out about the Baroque doctrine of the affects and other um, theor theoretical uh, approaches to, to this. But right. uh, the, the Jungian one really caught my eye because I thought, if, some, if you could pin down what was archetypal in music, you know, you'd have something there. And I think I sort of, after all these years, I sort of know what that is. 
I sort of know what they are, but then the, as soon as you try and pin it down, it's gone. It's right. kind of like the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. When you start observing the phenomenon, you ruin it. Right. You know? Or, yeah, or just the more you know, the less you know. Kind of. Right. <laughs> you know so I mean? uh, my yeah. philosophy has tried to been to, to, I exist as kind of like a, a, a moderator who imposes a structure on something that flows on its own, like you're almost like you're making a canal to make a river run a certain way. Okay. But if you don't have the river, there's no point building a canal. Right. You know, there were so many abstract composers in the 20th century whose music is um, intellectually incredibly constructed. Okay. And yet, it, it doesn't do anything for you. Right. Uh, we used to call it jawbone music. <laughs> it was music that you talked about more than listened to. Right. It was more interesting to talk about it. And, right. uh, um, it's a it's a fine line for me for sure. I've been deep diving on some a lot of modern composers over the last couple of months, and it's some of it's very hard to listen to, or I find my attention wandering. And I, and I do feel like it's because I don't have the academic background to appreciate it, possibly. But then, but then, then you kind of wonder like, what good is it as a piece of music if you do need to have a PhD to appreciate it? You know, you know, know. Uh, another thing that helped inspire me that I came off of at the Thonic Magic, yeah. heard of a composer named Christoph Penderecki. Yes, okay. You know the uh, Requiem for Victims of Auschwitz? Okay. Yes, yes. And the Requiem for the Victims of Hiroshima. You can find both those on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Those, and then there's also some Ligeti pieces. Okay. Uh, for instance, the famous one that was used, the Luxaterna that was used in 2001 Space Odyssey. No. So just because music has a, a, a structure and a, or, or its dissonance mm -hmm. does not mean at all that it, you know, that it can't have a powerful emotional and psychic impact. Right. Totally um, agree. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I, have found, I found a ton of stuff I like. Like Steve Reich, I'm really enjoying. Oh, He's I incredible. Love Steve Reich. Yeah. He I is mean. uncompromising. Yeah. Philip Glass, I'm a little less fond of because. Right. But Steve Reich to me is, I, I really am a Steve Reich admirer. Nice. But I would never write anything like him. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, he's already done it. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's fantastic, yeah. He so. starts a system and then he simply does not let it stop. Now, what he does, though, is the little bits, the emotion in his music is contained in the little bits he puts together. Yeah. And so he's already got that kind of uh, psychic emotional contact or connection in it. Right. And then you can hear it played through these structures. Yeah. It's a lot different from some of these modern composers where you have to hear through the structure first to see what the meaning is. Okay. Now I'm trying to have less demands on musicians yeah. because I want them to, you know, I'm no longer, you know, young and have stuff to prove. I'm more interested now in having things come out a certain way. Okay. And so if you give a musician a part that's too hard, they're concentrating on the technique of playing the part. That's another thing I... I learned uh, dealing with the kids is that as soon as they see something that starts to stumble them up, they're concentrating on getting the right note rather than how it's supposed to. You know, I had a, I was able to do so much useful thing with, with the students, just telling them, you know, how whole notes go. How do you play a whole note? You know, you can sit there and it can be the same sound for all four beats, or it can get louder, or it can get softer, the tone can change. You know, uh, uh, you just so you know you don't have to play. Uh, riffs of pages of 16th notes right. and, and sometimes you don't want to right it's about the sometimes it's about the space you're leaving in between the notes right it's about that negative space exactly. you know? yeah it's interesting to me that you said earlier that uh, your father was a like a folk musician yes. right mm -hmm. and I do I was wondering because I wanted to ask about I feel like there's a little bit of uh, attention to like traditional or kind of folk music or indigenous music in, in your compositions like are you 
When I was a young teenager, I absolutely flipped out over Renaissance and medieval music. I've never heard anything like it. In those days, you couldn't find recordings. Now it's everywhere. But in those days, it was hard to find, and so it was a rarity. So I, I, my first, um, my first, uh, the, the first that I really got into was Justin Dupré, and then uh, I got into early medieval stuff. And then, of course, when I got into school, I had access to recordings. Um, he had a guitar, um, a Martin D18. He still had that thing, and it was built in 1918. Flawless condition, but Man. that guitar was like, you didn't go near my daddy's guitar. <laughs> <laughs> you incurred the wrath of, of a dragon if you do that. So, uh, but the inside of the case was red, kind of a red velvet substance. And I remember they'd leave the case open, he'd have his friends over and they'd be fiddling and singing and playing and all that. Huh. And I'd just crawl in and curl up and go to sleep in the guitar case. And sometimes they'd even close it on me, you know, say, oh. <laughs> and then another thing I'd do is my mom played the piano and she liked Ravel and WC and all of that. So when I was done sleeping in the guitar case where the, the uh, Appalachian music was, I would yeah. go over and curl up under the piano where my mother was playing Ravel. That's awesome. So, so there was a lot of music growing up for yes. you, obviously. So in a way, I kind of my uh, my uh, eclectic stylistic tendencies yeah. were there from the beginning. And then of course, you know, my father got into uh, uh, Peter Paul and Mary and and the Beatles, and and so I had that happening too. Uh, so. Uh, I was basically, you know, I had so many sources of, of uh, now that was recorded, but the, the actual live music I heard was either that kind of uh, folk music, blues, or uh, gospel, or the, the classics, the Mozart, the Beethoven, the uh, Ravel, and Debussy, and that sort of thing that my mom played. Yeah. So that's kind of you know that was burned into me from, and I knew from I knew from the time I was about four years old that this is what was I was going to do. Wow! So you can see all of that in your compositions. I feel like I mean that's somehow not surprising at all. You know, I mean that makes perfect sense. You can, all, all those influences are present. I feel like. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I like to say I'm yeah. I'm not an unknown composer. I'm merely an obscure one. Right. <laughs> right. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be more famous after, in a oh, hundred years. Then. Well, I have to die first. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. in a hundred years. Yeah. There was a fellow named Richard Dyer Bennett. Does that ring any bells? It does not. But that he was well known in the day. He was a he was a uh, a very soft spoken uh, intellectual kind of musicologist, and he he kind of was the one that kind of got my father into tracing these ballads from the English sources into the Appalachian sources. And my father's, all his books I have, the Frank C. Brown Collection of North Carolina Folklore, wow. Charles Ballads of Virginia, all these other source books he used, I yeah. have all of them. Gosh, that's amazing. Um, hopefully you'll make them available to the public one day, right? Uh, they're so. in the UNC library. Are they? Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask, yeah. yeah. When I retire, I'm going to spend all my time in the Wilson Library. That's, that's, the, that's my goal. That's my, my plan for retirement, just uh, researching whatever. So, I'm too yeah. mixed up to retire. I have to retry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, or you never, or never, as long as if you're, if you're doing what you love, there's, you know, who, who needs to retire, right? So, um, yeah, there's yeah. making a living and then there's making a life. Right. That's... That's well said. Well said. Um, I, actually, this is a great segue because I wanted to ask you about the. Uh... And that's our show. Thanks to Forrest for letting us use Chthonic Mass throughout this episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for part two of our conversation 
when we cover indigenous music, the state of the soundtrack in modern day cinema, and we hear the story of how Forrest once built a Ramelan orchestra out of junk. Check out more episodes at a440pod.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at a440pod, and let's jam again soon.